And uh, this evening we're going to conclude our study of Joel's prophecy. So let's go ahead and turn to the book of Joel. And uh, the final verses that we have before us are found in the third chapter, verses 9 through 21. Joel 3, beginning in verse 9, this passage describes the culmination of the day of the Lord with the nations being brought to Jerusalem, uh, unbeknownst to them that they are being brought to Jerusalem by the almighty providential hand of God. They're being brought there to their own judgment. And the blessing then that follows immediately after um, is what this passage is describing. Uh, This is, of course, again, the day of the Lord and the blessing that follows after, which is the beginning of the millennial reign of the Lord Jesus Christ, His reign on earth for a thousand years. So we're looking at the fall of the reign of man in these verses and the beginning or the establishment of the reign of the Lord and of His Christ. Now, uh, one important distinction that I want to make here at the outset is the distinction between an individual and a nation. Of the individuals, of course, are judged by God at the end of the age, at the uh, white, great white throne judgment, and they are judged according to their own works and punished accordingly. Uh, but there is then such a thing as the judgment of the nations, as nations. This is when uh, God brings the peoples as such, and He judges them. And this is what is going on in this passage. In the same way, if you want to think of it in, 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 in different terms, in the same way that Israel at one point rejected its Messiah, sent Him away, and then was judged by uh, God through the Romans and scattered abroad. In the same way, the nations of the world also will reject and are rejecting the Messiah. We're living through that now. And they will be judged. And of course, that judgment begins with the battle of Armageddon. Uh, There's a summons to that war here in verses 9 through 11. This is again the, the, the same war that is titled the battle of Armageddon in Revelation 16, it says in verses 9 through 11, Proclaim this among the nations, prepare a war, rouse the mighty men, let all the soldiers draw near, let them come up, beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a mighty man. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. You can feel the warlike intensity here in in these verses. And you can do so just by considering the verbs from verses 9 through 11. Proclaim, prepare, rouse, draw near, come up, beat your plowshare, say, I am mighty, hasten, come, gather yourselves. It's it's an action-packed text. It's a call from God to get things moving. Notice it says here, it begins by saying proclaim, or the word is shout or announce, publish this. Proclaim this among the nations. This is God speaking, by the way. God's the speaker. But then you have to ask, who is on the receiving end of this? Who is being instructed to incite the nations to war? The text doesn't say, but uh, Scripture does make it clear who it is he's speaking to in other places. 
and that is to demonic spirits. You might remember in First Kings chapter twenty-two, nineteen, and on that uh, King Ahab is going to be judged by God, and he uh, assembles the sons of God, and he has each of the angels, even the demons, give their plan as to how they're going to incite Ahab to this war where he's going to be killed. And one of the demons says, I'm going to be a lying spirit to his prophets. And God says, go and you will succeed. And so you have demons that work on God's behalf because God is sovereign over all powers, even evil powers. And this is what's going to be happening here. In fact, in Revelation chapter 16, verse 13, we are told who those demons are that persuade the nations into engaging in this war. Revelation 16, 13. Again, the same account of the same battle. And it says uh, there in verse 13, And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, Three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are the spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God the Almighty. So frog-like demons on behalf of, according to Revelation, on behalf of the the dragon and the Antichrist and the false prophet. But of course, because God is ultimately behind all things, He's the one who decrees all things. He's the one who moves all things because he is ultimately behind it. It says here that he is the one who is speaking to these creatures and having them go out to the nations and shout and incite them to war. In fact, um, the, uh, this war obviously is a, is a war against him Ultimately, it's a war against his people, but him ultimately. Uh, the, the verb prepare here in verse 9 actually literally is the verb to consecrate, to make holy. So it says in verse 9, consecrate a war rather than prepare a war in the Hebrew. That, that's a way of saying that this is a holy war. This is a war against God. But of course, because God is invisible, um, the world doesn't get to... Uh, Attack him, so the world attacks Jerusalem. This is going to happen at the end of the tribulation period. The Antichrist will have, will at the beginning of the tribulation come in as a friend of Israel. But then toward the middle of the tribulation, he is going to turn against Israel. And somehow he is going to be deceived along with the rest of the world by these demonic powers. Or rather, he is going to uh, deceive the rest of the world with, along with the dragon and the false prophet. That the only way for the problems of the world to be resolved is by attacking Israel. By attacking the nation of Israel. And so it says here that these, he's, he's sent out these demonic spirits and they've incited the nations to come against Jerusalem. And it says here that the mighty men will be roused or excited. It says even the farmers are going to beat their plowshares. That would have been the steel blades that you use to cut the top layer of soil. They're going to beat those plowshares into swords and their pruning hooks, their vine dressers' knives into spears. In other words, this is one of those moments in history where the people are so excited and so taken up with this that even the farmer class is going to say, we're not even going to do any husbandry until we have 
finished this off. Until we have gotten rid of the nation of Israel. It's either us or them. Either we win or we die. That's the sort of spirit that they're going to be caught up in. And it says even that this, the weak will say, I am strong. So even the weakest of the people, are, they're just going to be gathering their strength, mustering up everything that they can to join in this effort, this antichrist effort to destroy the people of God. And every kind of people is going to be joining in this. Mighty men, literally, uh, it says the, 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 one, the term translated here as the mighty men, uh, literally as the heroes or champions. So these would be the... The army elite, the best of the, be of the best. And then you have a mention of the rank and file soldiers, and then the farmers, and then the weak. Uh, the weak would be, of course, the old, the disabled, etc. So, so from the army generals, the best of the best in this army, all the way down to the old and the disabled, every kind of people, every kind of person is going to join the hands together to come up and destroy Jerusalem. Everyone's going to be doing his part. And the armies, they're going to, uh, again, gather around Jerusalem. Verse 11 says that um, it speaks of all the surrounding nations or those in the vicinity of Israel. But that's not to the exclusion of the rest of the world. Because again, Zechariah 12 and Revelation 16 do say that this is a worldwide global army that is going to come up against the people of God. And this is another clear fulfillment of what you find, the principle that you find in Psalm chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, which you find across redemptive history, uh, where it says, The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, or His Messiah, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. This has been true throughout history. From the moment David wrote this, and then going forward to the time of the Messiah. And then at the end of the age, again, you see the peoples of the world gathering together to attack God and His Christ. And they are doing so, according to Psalm 2, verses 2 to 3, with the hopes of tearing their fetters apart and casting away their cords from us. So what is happening here, obviously, the problem with the human race is that People do not want to be ruled by God. They do not want to be ruled by God. They feel like His law is fetters or bonds. You don't want to obey what He says. Your, his commandments are burdensome to you, hateful to you. And God demands that you give up the sin that you so much love. And if you don't want to give up sin, then you become hostile to the one who is trying to take away what you love. And so the unbeliever, he uh, it doesn't make God his pleasure and his joy. He doesn't find uh, to be at the right hand of God, his pleasure, his joy. He doesn't find that. But rather, uh, he wants his sin, so he ends up going to war against God. And in this case, at the end of the age, very literally, he joins the Antichrist in overthrowing the city of God, where God is at work, where God has poured His Spirit, where God has brought a massive revival. And God is, is again working in the nation of Israel, and so they're going to be coming up 
against Israel. And you see actually um, an entrance or at least a calling of the judge himself here in verse 11. Notice that the second part of verse 11 says, Bring down, O Lord, your mighty ones. Now notice, uh, the, the armies of the world ha- had been said to come up to this location. Verse 9, let the soldiers come up. But here, there's a prayer, right, directed to Yahweh, O Lord. There's a prayer for God's mighty ones to come down. The, the verb to come down comes from a root that means to sink. And it was used for the act of descending. So there is a descent here. And the descent is of the mighty ones. Of course, that would be a reference to the angels. Psalm 103 speaks of angels with, uh, uh, by that title. Psalm 103 says that they are mighty ones. And they show up across redemptive history. Again, wherever God comes in judgment, you have angels coming. Deuteronomy 33. 3 verse 2, the Lord came from Sinai and dawned on them from Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran and he came from the, from the midst of 10,000 holy ones. At his right hand, there was flashing lightning for them. So even Joel himself as a prophet would have been able to turn to the holy scriptures and see that there, when God comes down in judgment, thousands of Holy angels come down with him. And so he sees this. He's, again, he's having a vision. And he sees all of these mighty armies of the world gathering themselves around Jerusalem. And he prays for the mighty ones, for God to show up in judgment. He prays for the mighty ones to come down. But if you think about it, he actually, uh, from our own perspective, we know that he actually was praying for the second coming of Jesus Christ. Uh, look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 with me. Second, uh, uh, 2 Thessalonians 1. And uh, I will be reading beginning in verse 5. Notice it's, it says there, this is a, a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that, you will not be, so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to those who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with His what? His mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who know, who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So again, he is saying, Paul is saying there that when Jesus Christ finally appears, he is going to appear with his mighty angels. He uses, uses even the same expression of uh, mighty angels. If you turn also uh, to the book of Jude, there in the book of Jude, there is a reference to the book of, of Enoch uh, that the, the inspired writer uh, understands is actually true, is actually precise. Uh, Jude 14 and 15. 
It says, uh, speaking of the, the false teacher, the false teachers that, that were invading the church and troubling the church, it says it was also about these men that Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of His holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way. And of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against them. So again, whenever you see uh, the Lord appearing, He appears with uh, the angels. And in fact, if you turn uh, to Revelation chapter 19, the passage again, the parallel passage to our passage today. Uh, when Jesus Christ appears, He appears with His mighty angels. Beginning in verse 11, Revelation 19. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him, which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And... The armies which are in heaven, clothed in white, in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And then he says, from his mouth come a sharp, comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. The, the picture here of a, of a sharp sword is that he gives out the commands, and the angels accomplish his bid, bidding of destroying and judging the nations. So again, Christ comes down, he appears and he appears with his angels. They are his instruments of judgment. And uh, by the way, that judgment begins by attacking the false church, the false believers of that time. If, t turn to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew 13 uh, Matthew 13 is where you find all of the king, kingdom parables if you ever want if you're ever trying to think of what's what's a place where where uh, I can find all of the parables that relate to the kingdom of God they're in one place in Matthew 13 and uh, in Matthew uh, 13:37 through 43 this is where having given the parable of the tares, this is where Jesus now begins to explain it to his disciples. Uh, Matthew 13, 37. It says there, and he said, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man, and the field is the world. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. Uh, so he's speaking again of, of, of the church, right? The people of God. And he's saying that the devil has infiltrated the kingdom of God and sown false believers in there. And he says, uh, and, uh, and the harvest is the end of the age. And the reapers are what? Angels. Angels. Um, so, just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire... So shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all stumbling blocks, and those who commit lawlessness, and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth 
as the son in the kingdom of their father. And he who has ears, let him hear. So notice, this is a... This is a, a, a time in which the wicked are gathered out of the kingdom of Christ. They will already, the, the church will already have been raptured. And then you have the period of the tribulation. And there more people join themselves to Jesus Christ. They become followers of the Lamb. And then when Jesus finally appears with his holy angels, he again purges the church by sending these angels. Again, this just shows the principle that judgment always begins with the household of God. And then the rest follows. And of course, we're looking at the rest here. But what, the point that I want, to look, I want to make here is that Joel was praying for the second coming of Jesus Christ. He is saying, bring down your mighty ones. But what is not clear yet in Revelation, which we know now, is that when the mighty ones come, they come down with the one who is the mighty one. With Jesus himself. And Zechariah 14.4 says that he will indeed appear. When all the nations are gathered against the holy city. Uh, Zechariah 14.3 and 4 says. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations. As when he fights on a day of battle. And in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. This is the, the, um, the appearing of Christ. Which is in front of Jerusalem on the east and the Mount of Olives will be split in the middle from east to west by a very large valley so that half of the mountain will be moved toward the north and the other half toward the south. So Jesus uh, appears finally when the nations are gathered around Jerusalem. First, he raptures his church. Then the tribulation breaks forth. And at the end of the tribulation to rescue Israel he appears while Israel is being besieged by her enemies. And when he appears, of course, he begins to judge. Uh, if you go back to our text in Joel 3, uh, the judgment is described, verses 12 and 13 says, Let the nations be aroused and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow for their wickedness is great. Now, we mentioned last time that there is no place properly called Valley of Jehoshaphat. But rather, this is a symbolic name. Jehoshaphat simply means Yahweh has judged. So the world will simply be coming to the place of its own judgment. The nations will finally come as nations to be judged. And Christ will, as it says here, sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Now, the Lord uses two metaphors here to describe the judgment. And first, He tells the angels to put in the sickle. A sickle, of course, uh, would be that implement that you use for cutting grain or grass, etc. A curved hook-like blade mounted on a short or in a short handle. And they would use those to cut off the stalks of ripened grain. Uh, but once you cut those stalks off, you transport that to the threshing floor where you separate the stalk from the chaff. But at that point, Joel actually introduces a different metaphor to describe what happens to the stalk that's been uh, cut off, as it were. He says, now changing metaphors, come tread for the wine press is full. The typical uh, wine press had basically two troughs 
at different levels, one at higher level and one at lower level with a connecting channel. And so the one that's on the higher ground is, has all the grapes gathered and put in there. And uh, somebody would go in there and tread on with uh, bare feet, would tread on the grapes. And then the juice would flow down through the channel and fill the second trough on the lower level, on the, or the, lever, the, the lower um, ground. And if you think about it, that's a perfect picture of judgment, right? Because the grapes are just there, sitting there, hemmed in. And here comes somebody and starts to tread on them. And, and, and blood is going out everywhere. It's a graphic picture of what the judgment of Jesus Christ is going to look like. This is the same judgment that he describes in Isaiah chapter 63. You might want to turn there. Isaiah uh, 63. <clears throat> and uh, uh, this is a, a, a conversation uh, in which one of the interlocutors is Christ himself. It says in Isaiah 63, 1, Who is this who comes from Edom who, with garments of glowing color, colors from Bozrah? Bozrah was the capital of Edom. Edom, Edom is being taken, represented there as the capital of, of all the Gentiles' wicked nations. I mean, Isaiah 63. Uh, and it says, who is, uh, uh, who is this who comes from Edom with garments of glowing colors from Bozrah? This one who is majestic in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. And then, of course, Messiah speaks. It says, it is I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Then the question comes, why is your apparel red and your garment like the one who treads in the wine press? And he says, I have trodden the wine trough alone. And from the peoples, there was no man with me. I also trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. And their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garment. And I stained all my raiment for the day of vengeance was in my heart and my year of redemption has come. I looked and there was no one to help and I was astonished and there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought salvation to me and my wrath upheld me. I trod down the peoples with my anger and made them drunk in my, with my wrath or in my wrath. And I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. So again, this is the Messiah speaking and describing this final judgment that he's going to exercise on the nations. Uh, now, of course, here he's saying, I did it alone. And then you say, well, but our text says that he's bringing down the angels and he's going to use the angels. So is it alone or is it uh, him and the angels? And of course, the answer is yes to both of them, because he uses the, the angels as his instruments and they operate by his strength and under his command. And he has, again, a sharp sword that comes out of his mouth. Basically, he's speaking forth judgment. And the angels are carrying out that judgment. And producing what is literally a bloodbath. Uh, it's so massive that Revelation 9-7, I won't read it right now. But it says uh, that it is the great supper of God. Where the birds of the sky are invited to come and eat the flesh of kings and so forth and so on. Now here in Joel 3, uh, we are told why it is that this judgment is taking place. This, specifically, this judgment of the nations. And, and it says that the harvest is ripe and the winepress is full and the vats overflow for their wickedness is great. Verse 13 again, put in the sickle. 
for the harvest is ripe. Come, tread, for the winepress is full, the vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. The mention of ripeness here, and fullness, and overflowing, that denotes this idea that even the sins of the wicked have been measured out, have been determined from the beginning. In other words, God sets forth limits to the sins of man. He determines from the beginning what they should be. There's a specific amount of sin that God lets the wicked engage in, and then He judges the wicked for those same sins. It doesn't mean that God works unbelief or evil into their hearts, but rather because Adam fell by his own free will, he uh, decreed that anyway, and he has set a specific boundary to which the sinners will go. And you can see that even uh, early in the biblical record. Um, In Genesis chapter 15, the story of of Abraham, when God is uh, promising him the Israelite uh, or the 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 land of Canaan, uh, in, in the the main passages for the Abrahamic covenant are found in Genesis 12, and then in verse in in chapter 15 of Genesis again the the Abrahamic covenant continues to to uh, make a revelatory process. We get more information about it, but if you notice in verse. 13 of Genesis 15, it says, God said to, said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, namely Egypt, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation, they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. So notice, God promises Canaan to Abraham and his descendants, but instead of just giving them the land right away, he actually says, you're going down to Egypt for 400 years. Why? Well, the Amorites are not done sinning yet. Their iniquity is not yet complete. They had not done all the evil that God decreed that they should do before they're judged. So even the unbeliever has a certain amount of evil that has been decreed for him. Uh, Matthew chapter 23, verse 32. This is Jesus himself appealing to the same principle. Matthew 23. He's speaking to the, the, uh, the Pharisees here. Uh, he's, he's denouncing them. This is the passage on the, on the woes against the scribes and the Pharisees for their hypocrisy. But toward the end, in verse 32, notice what he says. He says, Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How will you escape the sentence of hell? Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation." 
So again, this, this principle of there's a certain level of iniquity that unbelieving Israel needed to get to for judgment. And then um, in First Thessalonians, you, 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 there is a repetition of the same thing. First Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 14. Now this is Paul, and he, he was speaking of the... Uh, the obstacles that the Jews were placing on the gospel. And he says again in verse 14, 1 Thessalonians 2.14, For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved, with the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them to the utmost. So again, uh, the wicked have a measure of sins to fill up. God determines from the beginning what that measure should be, how far they will go. And once they fill up that measure of iniquity, then judgment comes. And this is why sometimes it explains why sometimes you look at the world and you see evil men and women doing heinous acts of evil and you wonder, why are they still alive? Why are they not judged yet? Why is it that the roof is not caving on that person's Head, uh, Of course, you know, we see it so clearly in our generation, even in the political class, politicians giving their entire careers just to the murder of babies and the mutilation of children with uh, the uh, so-called gender affirming care. And uh, they just give their entire careers to the spread of all kinds of sexual perversions and you say how can that person still be walking around and the answer is well on, a, on the one hand maybe God is going to save him on the other hand the answer could also be they haven't filled up the measure of their iniquity just yet but in either case God is going to bring glory to himself in either the salvation of that Individual, because of Jesus Christ and His magnificent mercy to extend mercy to someone like that, or in the destruction of that person. Uh, Proverbs 16, verse 4, The Lord has made everything for its own purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil. Uh, in other words, the wicked exist so that when God finally does judge them, all of creation might see how perfectly wise and just and fair God is. So that we can shout, your judgments are like a great deep. As it says in Psalm 36.6 and in Psalm 119 verse 137, Righteous are you, O Lord, and upright are your judgments. So all creation is going to be astounded at how he dealt individually with each sinner. Uh, how he exacted perfect vengeance, fair vengeance. Uh, I remember reading Thomas Watson who once said that the sinner will cry because of his judgment, but he will never cry, cry because of injustice. 
even the worst offender is going to know that the punishment being exerted on him is fair, is just. And this is why uh, Jesus spoke of the conscience that is like a, a, a worm that never dies in hell because this, uh, the sinners there will know that they are guilty and it will be plain to them that the punishment against them is fair. If you notice, the rich man in, in hell never said, this is unjust. Uh, he never even tried to get out. He just, said, he just said, send Lazarus to help me out and give me some relief. Um, so, of course, all of this brings great glory to God. It brings, um, it, it brings us to worship. Uh, Psalm 48, verse 11. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of God's judgments. And Psalm 105, verse 5. Remember His wonders which He has done. His marvels and the judgments uttered by His mouth. So for all eternity, we're going to be able to look back and see, wow, what a wise and perfect God who showed us how perfectly just He is and how He dealt with every single situation, beginning, of course, with the death of, the death of His only Son, whom He justly punished on our stead. So again, the judgments of God, they glorify Him and he's assigned a measure of, wi of wickedness even to the nations themselves as nations. And uh, we see that judgment that comes against the nations here in verses 14 through 16. Verse 14 says, Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon grow dark and the stars lose their brightness. The Lord roars from Zion and utters His voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earth tremble. So he see, notice, he, he, you can sense the, the, the emotion here in His voice. He says, multitudes, multitudes. Obviously, He's seeing in His vision a, a, a vast crowd of humanity. I mean, the, broad, the, 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 the way that leads to destruction is a broad way. And so you see just a sea of humanity coming down for this judgment. And there are few, of course, who walk in the narrow way, few who are saved. And so this great mass of mankind is brought down to this place called the Valley of, of Decision. Of course, we saw that it's also called the Valley of Jehoshaphat. So the Valley of Decision is also symbolic. Uh, and that is because God is going to decide on the fate of the nations there. He is going to punish the nations. And uh, it's described here, this punishment of Jesus coming down and, and treading, treading down the, the wine press. Uh, as that is happening, there's a description of the sun and the moon growing dark and the stars losing their brightness. And the lion of the tribe of Judah roaring from Zion. So Jesus, again, He will have returned he will be speaking His word when He roars from Zion. When the sharp sword comes out of His mouth, the angels go and gather and begin to slay the wicked. And there's a carnage all over the valley of, the valley of Megiddo, Armageddon. But again, this is not yet the white, great white throne judgment. That is the judgment of individuals. Rather, this is a judgment of the nations. And not every individual within those nations is actually here. 
Uh, I mean, again, the church has been raptured by that time. But even then, as the tribulation goes on, there will be more and more and more and more people of all the nations who are gathered and are brought to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And those are obviously not going to be joining this crusade of the Antichrist. In fact, it says in Zechariah chapter 9 verse 10 that after this, he is going to speak peace to the nations. How does, Christ, how does God speak peace to the nations? But that there is a remnant of those who had turned to Jesus Christ in all the nations. And so they do stand, the nations, um, they just stand in need of repopulation because only a small remnant was left. And they need uh, reformation of their governments and so forth and so on. And it's over those nations that now Israel, which has been perched, which has been cleansed, Israel is going to be the most glorious of all. And their uh, glory is described here in verses 16 through 21. Uh, it's the, the glory is described in terms of, of the purity of Israel and the prosperity and the perpetuity of Israel. Uh, the, the purity or purification of Israel is it's recorded here in verses 16 and 17 and 21. You'll see here, it says in, in verse 16, But the Lord is a refuge for His people and a stronghold to the sons of Israel. Then you will know that I am Yahweh your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. So notice, even again, as the nations are avenged, Israel is going to be protected. God is going to be a refuge for them in the storm of this judgment. Uh, because, again, they will have gone through the outpouring of the Spirit. They will be those who are the remnant of Israel left by this time. They will be those who will have called upon the name of the Lord and will have been saved. And that's why it says that Jerusalem will be holy and strangers will pass through it no more. Of course, we're talking now of the millennial reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. It says that the inhabitants of Jerusalem from then on will be godly people and they will have circumcised heart and they will have the Spirit of God in them and they will be clean. And uh, that nation is not going to be a place for, as it says here, the strangers to walk through. That is to say that you're not going to have um, ungodliness practiced there. Uh, Revelation 21, 27, nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it. So Jerusalem in the millennial reign of Christ, even though the uh, earth is going to have some sin in it, because um, you're going to have those who die at the age of 100 as a tragedy of utmost proportions. And then, of course, at the end of the thousand year reign is when you have the purging entirely of the curse. But during the millennial reign, there is some sin. Nevertheless, Jerusalem itself is going to be a center in the world for eminent holiness. Eminent, godly people. And the reason for that, actually, is given in verse 21. It's very interesting. It says, And I will avenge their blood, which I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. Now, uh, frankly, this is one of those places in the NASB where uh, the translation is, is really a bad choice, I think. Because the word, if you look it up on a, on a lexicon, the, the, it comes from a root that means to make clean. 
And every single time that this word is used by the Old Testament writers in the PL stem, is what we call it, uh, which is the way that it is being used here, they use it actually to, uh, to speak of this um, notion of acquitting or leaving sins unpunished, like a court, uh, a court term, like declaring someone innocent. Um, Exodus chapter 20, verse 7, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished. Same word here, who takes his name in vain. And uh, Numbers 14, 8, the Lord, will, the Lord is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but by no means he will clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. So again, this term... Um, that we have here that is translated as avenge is actually a legal term for acquitting or, uh, uh, or declaring someone to be innocent, not being punished for something. So the text literally says, I will acquit their blood, which I have not acquitted. So there is a blood that, that they have that needs to be taken away, removed. And then this purification of Israel happens. And of course, we ask, so what, what does that mean? Uh, what does it mean for God to, to acquit the blood that is in the hands of Jerusalem? One thing to note here is that this, the sins of the other nations, we're going to look at that shortly. But in verse 19, it says that the sins of the other nations is that they spilled the innocent blood of the sons of Judah. Now here, the text is saying that Israel, it says, itself, has also blood in it. So, whose blood would that be? And to answer that, listen to Matthew uh, 23, 34, and 35 again, where Jesus says, Therefore, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them will, you will kill and crucify. Some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, so that upon you may fall the guilt of of all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. So according to Jesus, the blood of the prophets is on Jerusalem. It has not been acquitted. It is on them now. In fact, uh, the blood of Jesus Christ is on Jerusalem now, on the Jews. Matthew twenty-seven twenty-five. The people said, His blood shall be upon us and our children. So the Jews, if you think about it, now they have the blood of Christ in their hands. They have not been acquitted of that blood, not as a nation. So the nation of Israel uh, has not come yet to the open fountain of the Spirit to be washed. And for that reason, if you look at... Um, the history of Western civilization from the moment Jesus died and the Israelites were scattered and the Jews were scattered abroad. Uh, this is a story of tragedy after tragedy against the Jewish people where they have been uh, punished or chastised by God through the nations wherever they have gone. But the promise here in verse 21 is that one day that blood is going to be taken away. Again, I will acquit their blood which I have not acquitted, for the Lord dwells 
in Zion. So it says the Lord dwells in Zion. The Lord is, is himself a covenant keeping God. He's a forgiving God. And for that reason, he has taken away the sins of Israel. And so, so Israel will have purity. Beyond purity, of course, coming into the millennium. Now, now that they've been purified, they've been made holy. Um, coming into them, into the millennium, they're going to be prosperous. Notice verse 18. It says, And in that day the mountains will drip with sweet wine, and the hills will flow with milk, and all, and all, and all the brooks of Judah will flow with water, and a spring will go out from the house of the Lord to water the valley of Shittim. Um, this is obviously mostly poetic language, and it describes the material prosperity of the land of Canaan, in the millennial reign of Christ, it says that the mountains will be dripping with sweet wine. And that means that the grapes are going to be so large and so many that when they are pressed, it is as if sweet wine were flowing from the mountains themselves. And of course, it says also that the, the hills will flow with milk. And that means that there's going to be so much cattle on those uh, hills that... Uh, that they're going to produce much milk. And it is as if the hills themselves were flowing out with milk. And of course, there's a mention here of all the brooks of Judah flowing with water. So this is going to be a very fertile and fruitful and full of life kind of land. And they're even going to have symbols, visible symbols of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Even for the ages to come. Notice that Joel mentions here a spring that goes from the house of the Lord to water the valley of Shittim. The, the, the valley of Shittim seems to be uh, the same one that is elsewhere, uh, elsewhere called the Kidron Valley that leads from Jerusalem all the way down to the Dead Sea. That's what you read in Ezekiel 47. I'm not going to read that. You can read it uh, in your own time. But Ezekiel 47 says that there's a river that flows in the millennial kingdom, from the temple, the house of the Lord, and that river flows into the Dead Sea, and it is for healing. In fact, uh, Ezekiel forty-seven twelve says, by the, by the river on its banks, on one side and on the other, will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, and their fruit will not fail. They will bear, bear every month. Uh, because their water flows from the sanctuary and their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. So this river is going to bring unusual um, fruitfulness wherever it goes, even outside of the holy city. And I think that the purpose of that river will simply be to symbolize the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because the Spirit of God is represented throughout the scriptures by water and so this this life-giving river is going to be going out and is going to be bringing healing wherever it goes but notice it is also going to going to be go going out from the temple and the temple is a type of the lord jesus christ so the the point there is a visible uh monument a visible symbol for all during the millennial kingdom that the Son of God sent forth His Spirit to cleanse and to wash and to heal the nations. They're going to have this beautiful river flowing out of the temple. And that as a massive illustration of the healing power of the gospel 
for all who believe, all who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, beyond prosperity, Israel is going to have perpetuity. And that's in verses 19 and 20. Uh, verse 19 says, Egypt will become a waste and Edom will become a desolate wilderness because of the violence done to the sons of Judah in whose land they have shed innocent blood. But Judah will be inhabited forever and Jerusalem for all generations. So notice uh, uh, this is the judgment of all nations, but there are two specified here, Egypt and Edom. And why are these two re- uh, um, Specified? Well, the answer is that they're representing the rest. Egypt, of course, uh, was the archenemy of Israel during its early years as a nation. They were oppressed in uh, Egypt before the Exodus. And then Edom is the nation that comes from Esau. And they, you might remember, after the Jews came out of Egypt, the Edomites refused Israel passage through their land when they were headed to the promised land. And then in the reign of Jehoshaphat, they tried to invade Israel. And then that failed. But then when Nebuchadnezzar attacked Jerusalem, besieged it, the Edomites joined in the carnage. And so uh, for that reason, they are said to have done violence to the sons of Judah. And And in fact, it says that they... They um, shed innocent blood, which is to say they came in, uh, in, into Jerusalem. They had not been provoked by, uh, the, by the nation of Israel. They just joined in and started attacking Israel. And God is taking account of that. And He is going to punish it. But, but again, these are mentioned as representative of all the nations. So He is speaking of the nations as they are... In their sin as they are rebellion. And he is saying that they are going to be punished. Based on their violence done against the Jews. And if you think about it. At the very end of the age. That is the same sin that will bring them. To attack. Or to this judgment. Right? Because it is Israel that they will come to destroy. And now he is saying that they will be punished. For they're attacking Jerusalem and Christ is going to abase them. But, it, but Judah, in contrast, it says it is going to be inhabited forever in Jerusalem for all generations. So they are going to be perpetually uh, a nation and they are going to be established as a glorious nation above all others. They're going to be the capital of the world during the thousand year reign of Christ. And Joel's point here then is that every nation, this is, uh, this is what he wants to say throughout the whole book. Every nation is accountable to God for its own sins. But he is also saying those who repent, they will find in God uh, abundant kindness and grace. And now, if you want to sort of bring it back to our own nation, the reality is that our own nation is going to continue to go further and further and further down into sin and judgment, unless, of course, revival comes, which is for the Lord to do, for the Lord to decide. But uh, either way, um, this nation is going to continue down in the path of judgment. And if it is still around by the time the Antichrist comes onto the scene, then it too will join all the other nations in attacking the people of God. Nevertheless, even 
in this nation, God will preserve a remnant. And after the coming of Christ and the establishment of His earthly reign, He will make even this place prosperous and full of righteousness and peace. Because that is what the Lord Jesus Christ will do on this earth. He will make His blessing flow as far as the curse is found.